1: the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River.
0: And I'm podcasting from the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin and the Shebeg people.
1: March is Crime and Punishment Month at the Halo Halo podcast. So today we'll be reviewing Homicide and Halo Halo, and then later talking about favored Filipino narratives, especially rooting for the underdog. But before we do that, Siggs, let's catch up. What have you been up to pop culture-wise?
0: What have I been up to pop culture is the one thing that stands out in my brain is a little sitcom. I don't know if you watched it called Abbott Elementary. Have you
1: heard of it? No. Tell me more about it.
0: It is fantastic. So this is created by the lead main actress, Quinta Brunson, who is from Black Lady Sketch Show. Mm. It is a single camera comedy in the vein of the office modern family parks and rec vibe where there's talking heads (laughs) and they're talking to a camera and it is set at a Philadelphia inner city school. So Mm. Quinta Brunson is a grade two teacher and she has several colleagues working here at this school which is just trying to make ends meet and it's fantastic it's super funny it's low-key I think what's great about it Kuya, that you'll really really love is there is a bit of like a theme of like you know how the office there was a Jim and Pam build up Quinta Brunson's character Jean has a new co-worker played by he was in the show Everybody Hates Chris he's he's that lead actor and he's grown up I remember him being such a kid and now he's an adult and he's a subs- supply teacher for grade two and she has a lot of comrades but it's very, very funny. It's very bright. There's only about nine episodes, which are available on demand. It's on ABC, but it's called Abbott Elementary, a great little half-hour comedy. And it's just very simple. So, like one of the first plot lines is they needed new rugs for school. You know, in grade two, they would sit down <laughs> yes. and yes. they would just sit. And there's a little bit of hijinks. Like one of her co-workers, like, hey, I can get, you know, a carpet that fell off a truck and a little bit of craziness. And There's some money there, but the principal, who seems a little bit, she's a little bit scatterbrained, doesn't spend the money to get the rugs. But you find out that Quinta <laughs> Brunson's character gets the rug because one of her kids falls asleep on the rug. And they're like, why does he fall asleep? She's like, you know what? This is the only place he gets rest every day.
1: Oh. You know what I mean? So it really ties it
0: up. And I know that you have a bit of like a, a teaching background or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's a wonderful show. I highly recommend it. It's a little bit of a light comedy, but it really packs punches. And especially on ABC, you and I are so used to streaming yeah. services, right? Where they're pushing it, but... This is occurring on normal old school network wow. television. well, and good, for it. It good, good for ABC. It is good for ABC.
1: Oh my now, goodness! Now, what
0: about you? What are you into for the past? Uh, so, I think while. you guys know Culture. that we've
1: been watching Downton Abbey in anticipation <laughs> of eventually Downton Abbey the movie, A New Era, which is a sequel to the original movie that came out after the series. Well, Julian Fellows has finally released The Gilded Age and we have gotten around to finally watching that. And so Michael and I are so transfixed on watching the Gilded Age. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, and I know that original reviews came out and a lot of people were just not happy with it. Like, people were saying things like, oh, it's not like Downton Abbey, or mm-hmm. you can tell that they're using a lot of sets or whatever the case may be. And I'm like, it's turn of the century. It's in the 1880s. It's in the 1800s. And then the second part is is, is that, how is this any different from Bridgerton? right? Like there's many sets oh. on Bridgerton. Like that's the same time period. I don't understand what people are complaining about, but I think people are just wanting to see more of Downton Abbey. And I just think to myself, if you want more of Downton Abbey, just do what Michael and I are doing. Or like we have it on constant repeat. And then <laughs> we have a spare moment. We'll watch like an hour of Downton Abbey. But I have to say, it just gets better and better, oh, especially oh, yeah wonderful. with Christine Baranski, right? And oh, so I mean- we... We find it delicious and sexy and filled with lots of schemes. And so I'm just enjoying it. And I've got like three more episodes left. They still have to release the the last three episodes, but I can't wait to see. Yeah, it's dropping weekly. And it's just, it's interesting finding out more about this time period in America. And it's loosely based on the Vanderbilt Family in some ways, except they're known as the Russells. So it's new money versus old money. And the Van Ryans is kind of where Christine Baranski and Cynthia Nixon's character Ada and Ah. Ada play. And so it's just fun to kind of see the clash new money and old money. And then just like the foibles of the rich essentially in New York and then it's just fun to see some of the architecture or at least the reproduction of architecture and then it's Mm -hmm. just made me do a bit of a deep dive in terms of learning more about the Gilded Age. So interesting I can't wait to see how it ends. I'm so glad that it's gone on for a renewal for season two. Oh it is? Oh
0: awesome and this is HBO right? This is HBO
1: yeah Max Crave. Cool. The other thing that we've been up to pop culture wise is we recently and finally have taken in The Eternals just to be Uh. on top of our Marvel Cinematic Universe and I know that you and Ray have done your taste test on it. And I know that it, you guys were, how shall I describe it? Pleasantly gracious towards them. And I would say I <laughs> but, was... <laughs> but
0: after seeing it again, Kuya, and I think you and I might agree, what are your thoughts on how Eternals could have been rolled out in a much better way?
1: You know, personally, I think that they could have actually shown it more as a limited series. Yes. Or better yet take out all the flashbacks to the past, make us all wonder, and then immediately release all of that past stuff in all of these mm. limited series episodes. So then, I think they it worked. I think they would have worked. So then just show us the Eternals and then saying how they have to kind of get back for a reunion but not know why. And then let us kind of figure out the history. Because part of it is just having to figure out the history and I just thought, oh they were just really ambitious with this. Like there is a good story here, but I think every I time we had to go back and forth, like, okay, now we're Too in much, ancient yeah. Babylon. Oh, now we're in Tenochtitlan. tulan You know, I was just kind of like, okay, I get that you're going backwards to tell us the motivation, but you've totally now taken me out of the film. And now when we're back in the present day, I have to think, okay, why are we here in the present day now? Exactly. So, but I
0: agree with you. I think it would have been great as chapters in the limited series.
1: Yeah. I think, so I think too. it would
0: have worked well. I, I think that's such a, an astute observation. I think it would have been much more successful.
1: Yeah, and then it would have created much more of a mystery. I agree. Which I think is something that's a little bit missing sometimes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's all actions and all of that stuff. But the mystery here, I think they could have built that in, had a movie, had a limited series, and then it would have developed the mystery of like, why... Are the relationships this way? Right. Anyways, so the mystery or what could have been the mystery for the Eternals and moving on to the mystery of homicide and holo-holo, Hollow, is our pop culture topic today with SIGS where we discuss Mia Manansala's second Tita... Tita what is Rosie's Kitchen series. Tita, Tita Rosie's series. Kitchen series. So I know that there's a third in the series. And earlier, SIGS, last season you had actually done a taste test, I believe, on arsenic and adobo, or is it adobo? Arsenic
0: arsenic and adobo, and it was fantastic. And I had told you, like, when we were planning the season, I said, Kuya, how fitting is it that Mia has her second novel called Homicide and Hallow Hollow released in February? Right. So we sort of pivoted and wanted to include it in this month of March of Crime and Punishment. And I wanted to introduce it to you. So I thought, you know, hey, let's go visit Tito Rosie's kitchen. And see the second novel of this three series. The third novel is called Blackmail and Babinka, but we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about that
1: later for sure. Exactly. Well, just just to kind of for our listeners, for those of you that don't know this book, Homicide in Hollow Hollow, recently released again by Mia Manansala. It is a frothy whodunit in the sleepy town of Shady Palms. Now, I don't actually know where Shady Palms is. I felt like it was in California. Was it in California?
0: I feel like it was somewhere warm, but I could be totally wrong. But when I think Shady Palms, I think Florida. Florida. Or I think, you know, like Shady Pond. It's almost like this fictional place in my head because Lila, the main heroine, came from a different place to return to this like sleepy city.
1: Yeah, so this sleepy city or sleepy town. So again, it was quite a whodunit, this sleepy town of Shady Palms with a few explanatory commas along the way with respect to Filipino culture and had many descriptors of Filipino food for a real good dash of good measure. And the way that I kind of think about it is it really was... Was Miss Congeniality meets Nancy Drew, or even Scooby Doo, for that matter, right? Because she well, had like a team of people behind her helping well, her figure absolutely. out this mystery. So, yeah,
0: exactly. And like when we talk about mysteries, and for listeners that are tuning into us, or, I guess the theme was a cozy mystery. Now, I don't know about you, Kuya. Did you know what a cozy mystery was? I found I out
1: afterwards, book? and certainly this cozy mystery is indeed that. I didn't even know that this was a subgenre did I. of crime yeah. fiction in a lot of ways, and. and. And it's typically meant for young adults or teen readers, typically in a Sunday afternoon, or if you don't have much else to do and you read really quickly and really fast, it's something that could probably be read really quickly over the span of of a weekend. But a cozy mystery essentially is a subgenre of crime fiction, as I had said earlier, where again, the sex and the violence usually occur between chapters or offstage. So usually, you know, there would be some discovery at the end of the chapter and then 30 minutes later on the next chapter, it's like oh that person just died right (laughs) you know and so we don't hear any of the violence and what's also common to all cozy mysteries is that they usually occur in some type of small or intimate community usually with an amateur sleuth in this case Laila where the emphasis is always on problem solving and all the while having references of some sort to some hobby or occupation and along with some subplots of romance along the way. So that, you know, listeners is what cozy mystery is all about. But since I have to say this is very different than what I'm used to in terms of reading my own pulp fiction or crime fiction. I'm usually oh, yeah? used to reading. Yeah, I'm used to reading a lot of like airport novel, crime novels. They're typically like these Robert Ludlum books that are like four or 500 pages. And I just remember reading them really young, like in my high school days, like the Scarlatti Inheritance, or as most of us know, the Born Identity or the yeah. Born Identity Trilogy or the Icarus Agenda. When I used to read Robert Ludlum books, it would always be three-word titles. And then the, the books that had one-word titles are Trevane, Those were the books that never did so well, but really fast-paced. Reads where there were like four or 500 pages and it was quick to read. You could probably read three chapters or I could read three chapters like on a bus before mm-hmm. getting into high school or whatever the case may be. And again, they move at a quick pace and and you're reading about the violence, but this was in such contrast to Homicide in Hollow Hollow where it was really thoughtful and we found out about the relationships and then, of course, most of all, lots and lots of description about food, especially Hollow Hollow, right? Right. So oh, yeah.
0: It, yeah, it took it to a different level. And you know, it's so funny. I think uh, listeners, when I read the first novel, arsenic and adobo, I actually read it. And then I said, this friend, you know what? I'm going to download the audiobook. Mm. So I downloaded the audio book for just, you know, to rest these old man eyes. And I was like, <laughs> what is this going to be like? And you're immediately taken into this world. And I want to give props to Denise Cabanella. She's Mm. the reader of the book and she does the recording. I felt like I was watching, I mean, I feel like this could be a screenplay for like a lifetime movie. Like Mm -hmm. it was sort of engaged, right? Like she's so energetic. What's so interesting in the audio book and obviously in the written book is just like, there's a preface, right? There's even at the beginning, which is interesting. And I know we'll delve into that a little bit deeper. There was like the author, me, Mia had written this, Mia Manancella, written this during pandemic. And she notes that she had gone to right. dark places, mm. right? So she talks about mental health issues. There's something about so genuine for an author to be so candid at the beginning to say, Hey, just for your awareness during pandemic, I wrote this, there are some content warnings. And she warns the listeners though, about some of the themes, which may cause for thought for people. And I thought that was such an interesting way to begin the book. I don't know about you and how that foreshadowed to you. be like, Oh, this is interesting. I, Very rarely do I hear some sort of, like, warning when I read, aside from, like, the basic, like, you know, this movie may contain, like, sex, violence, whatever. But I guess to identify with the author, during this pandemic times, you know, when I wrote this book and did this creation, I went to some dark places. So this, I guess, the story helps her work out those feelings. And I thought that was really interesting. The second thing I have to say I like about this audiobook, and you'll never get it from a written book, is that the person, Denise totally gives you a one-on-one and this is i know jesse this is more of the explanatory <laughs> comma where she goes in and talks about honorifics oh right sense. Yes. and i loved it because they go kuya means older brother this is honorific. Right. Mm-hmm. halo halo is a dessert adobo and the diction and the filipino accent is like spot on like right 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 like Kui and I are very familiar with our, our culture and we're willing to learn more. But if you didn't know anything about Filipino culinary or Filipino culture, this would be your one on one. You could totally take this audiobook and be like, oh, so what does it mean when you call someone ate? And like, it's you could look it up. Read it. Yeah. But well, you could look it up. You could totally you read, read it, it up. You could see, is that eight? But you have everything sort of explained. And I know, That's like, right. There's... I sort of thought that was sort of fun, where it's like, oh, this is totally gives yeah, like a one on one.
1: The best part about novels or media or pop culture that has explanatory commas is is, is that it includes people in our culture, right? And I love that. I love that. I know that the critiques and the comments out there is that sometimes it's like, well, it may not be meant for other people. And it might not be meant for you or me, right, in terms of reading a cozy mystery with a bit of explanatory commas or with respect to Filipino cultures. But I can also appreciate the fact that it probably opens up to an audience that might not otherwise read this if it didn't have those explanatory commas. So I'm grateful for that. And I'm glad that Mia had those explanatory commas as a way of bringing people in. And I can appreciate and respect that and glad that it's there. But I just have to say, for me, what was really delightful in the midst of doing all the problem-solving and doing a matter of elimination of, okay, can't be this person, I can't be this person, yeah. I can't be this person, was just all those descriptions of Filipino food and halo-halo. Oh. And then also the fusion, right? Like when they were That's- talking, when Lila was like talking about white chocolate, ube, and macadamia nuts, That's and I exactly thought, yeah. oh, to die for. And all I thought was... My stomach is about to grumble and I just felt like driving to Seafood City to go get some like ube crinkle cookies and see if I could find some macadamia nuts and then make it myself, right? That's what I certainly very much appreciated and why I thought it was such a frothy mystery at the same time. And it was a nice kind of like, okay, we had some thinking and then it was counterpointed or juxtaposed against the Filipino foods piece. And I guess if I read arsenic and adobo, I I bet you it's probably the same too. So just like verbal descriptions of food porn, as they would say.
0: It totally is different versus reading it versus hearing it. Because Mm. with Denise, you can hear her just say even when she's talking about the adobo wings and Mm. they're in the middle of a discussion or a fight, like the person put the food down or the person was waiting for a serving of a synagogue. Like it was just so colorful. Like it, you cannot read these books on an empty stomach. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that's very right. (laughs) Do you feel the same way? Cause you're like, (laughs) yeah, the way that they discussed it. And like, of course Mia was bright enough at the end of the book. There's all the recipes.
1: I know. I saw that. I I was like, you are so super smart.
0: smart. But if anyone wants to know what hollow hollow was, Such a great description, and the fact about fusion. And we've had discussions about food fusion on our podcast when Richie Valdez appeared like last season, and we're talking about like how you get examples and ideas for fusing flavors. Mia does a great way of explaining it, and you're right about the ubi and acarina. We need to balance this. This needs to be sweet. It's very subtle. So, what do we need to put in here? How do you update this flavor? Right, and you know, just it was like opening your mind into a chef.
1: But I have to tell you, one thing that I thought of was when I was looking at the recipes at the end, I just kept thinking to myself, I wonder if Mia has actually left off one secret ingredient in each of the recipes. Because, you know, we're not spoiling too much, but there is a point in the book where she is kind of trying to figure out a recipe and realizes that some key ingredients were missing, you know, and I just thought, I wonder if Mia had done that. So if we ever get to talk to Mia, I want us to ask that question. It's like, are there any missing ingredients in the recipes that you supply at the end of the book? Uh, and I what? mean uh, and ahead, I don't ahead. I don't need to know, right? I mean, like I don't need to know what those missing ingredients might be. But if she answers it, well then it creates our own food mystery and isn't that kind of fun. So then I just thought, oh, that might be clever. If she did that on purpose, ooh, clever, 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 right? It it keeps the mystery going past the novel in some ways.
0: Oh, that's old school Filipino man. Like we'll yeah, share the totally recipe, is. but I'm not, I'm not going to share it. Like my father's like, you know what? I know you like telling people about, you know, making sal because you cannot give the exact recipe out. Okay. I'm like, all right, all right. I won't. And that's it's just true. part of our culture. We, it doesn't, it's, it's special. There's true. a way that people prepare stuff. <laughs> you so know and me, if you are listening to this, we respect you. But I bet you, I bet you. I just want to know,
1: Mia, if you indeed took out one critical ingredient, that's all I want to know. And then it just creates a fun mystery for us to try out these recipes ourselves (laughs) or our families to try out these recipes and see, hmm, what other ingredient could we put this in and create a twist of some sort? So in any event, that's kind of what I was thinking. The other thing that I appreciate, kind of like you've already mentioned this in terms of the importance of therapy and and the stigma of mental health that she's experienced or that Mia has kind of talked about and how the pandemic has probably put a strain on everyone is that she was very open through the, the main character, Lila, just talking about therapy and that there was much discussion about her mom and wondered if, for me, I actually wondered if Lila was actually going, through more grief than trauma, actually, is what I was thinking. And I also knew, too, I didn't get to read Arsenic and Adobo, so it makes me just want to go back and find out. But I was just thinking to myself, huh, like I know that, you know, they keep talking about trauma, but I just kept thinking to myself, but is it grief? Anyways, that was something that I just kept wondering no, about, I think too. that's a
0: really good point because also, to whatever, I think there's much more memories tied to the pageant, Right. this yeah. is set, set upon and that her mom had said oh you need to be a pageant winner and it's sort of linked to that I think yeah Arsenic and adobo at yeah, the very traumatic what she goes through and fights for and solves the mystery of the, at the end of that novel it would make sense like it's only been a couple months of course she's recovering like, clearly, yeah. like yeah yeah
1: for sure mm-hmm. for sure and I just thought to myself we know mental health symptoms can look like a number of different things. Right. it's not. There's usually like 10 criteria and you only need five or six of them, but which five or six you end up endorsing makes your mental health issue look different from somebody else's expression of the same mental health issue. I mean, it's neither here nor there. It doesn't actually matter if it was trauma or grief. I think the important message was, you should probably talk to somebody and maybe the therapist will help you sort it out in some way. So the other thing that I also appreciated was just the normalizing of therapy and how everyone just kept talking about therapy. And so, you know, from one of the characters, the coach, Sana, Sana. to, to the detective, Park, who kept saying... Have you talked to the therapist that I've recommended for you? There is a therapist that would, that is willing to help you and stuff like that. And then just Lila at the end very much capitulating and saying, you know, I think maybe I should get some therapy. So I just really appreciated the normalizing of, of all of it. The other thing that I also appreciated was just the revisioning of the tropes of the prominence of beauty pageants for Filipinos. Sigs, you and I are such big fans of beauty pageants, and I think that on the whole, the majority of the Philippines is. But I I also, but we also, you and I also know how problematic they are, in that they can sometimes reinforce misogyny and almost create gendered ways of thinking. And so, you and I certainly love the competition and the pageantry of it all. I actually enjoyed how they rethought And was clever to focus the pageants competition on community service as opposed to beauty. And I I really, I also like how they revised the criteria and the selection process where community service and socialization were gatekeeping criteria to the final competition. And I have to say, like when they were talking about kind of meeting the contestants and socializing, like the first, if you will, competition was a meeting group. Although they didn't talk about it as a competition, I also knew that they were sizing people up at the same time. Oh yeah, at, at least meantime. some of the, <laughs> the, the judges were. And it reminded me of actually a scholarship that I competed for in high school where oh, really? yeah Tell me. this was a scholarship that would fund me to go to any university in Canada and pay for all four years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so and this was the first time they were actually inviting Catholic schools to the competition of this scholarship. Mm-hmm. And so they had selected two Catholic schools, so my Catholic high school and another Catholic high school in the west end of the city. And so they brought us in and they actually trained us on how to do conversation at the lunch no table. Way. Oh, Sigs, it was so amazing, right? And then yeah. I had to read up on current events for a good four months and knew what it was. So I was asked to read this magazine called The World and I just to kind of keep up on current events. No way. Because yeah. although they weren't saying this, they were judging you At the lunch table So what would happen is That we would go through A series of interviews In the day And then at lunch We would sit around With four other um, Candidates for this Prestigious scholarship And then they had people From the judging panel Sit at pairs At the judging panel And then they would all Talk to you And you knew That you were being Evaluated on Your knowledge Of current affairs Your ability to socialize Your ability to talk To others And so you couldn't Look overly competitive But you had to to look like you were also talking to other people, which I was, and I took an interest <laughs> in them. And yeah. then also had to eat. And like, unbeknownst to that, me, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, so it's like, what is the soup spoon? Like, and I just remember the guidance department at my high school was preparing me because I was the one that was selected to actually represent the east end of the city for this really prestigious scholarship. In the end, I made it to the final 10, but I didn't, didn't get the ultimate prize. The, the top four would get it, but you know, I got a really great consolation prize. But it just reminded me that scene in the Homicide and Hollow Hollow book where they're all meeting and greeting that, oh yeah, like you're getting judged there. You're getting adjudicated whether you know it or not. So anyways, it was just kind of pleasant to see how they really looked at socialization, community service, in addition to talent Mm. in terms of this scholarship and beauty pageant competition. And then the last two things that I kind of liked in terms of what this novel had really focused on was that sibling-cousin rivalry... And the unfair comparisons. So Lila has this cousin named Bernadette.
0: Bernadette.
1: Yeah, who were constantly compared and contrasted against in a lot of different ways. And, you know, and I think that sometimes this is really unique to Filipino stories because oh my gosh. most times when you read about sibling rivalries or cousin rivalries and these unfair comparisons, usually it ends up in some type of continuing, never-ending drama. I just loved how that there was an emphasis on trying to find common ground, reunion, and forgiveness. And interesting to also see how cousin and sibling rivalries just didn't occur between Lila and Bernadette, but between Lila's mom and Bernadette's and her mom. Yeah. That's right, that's right. So that was just kind of interesting to kind of see depicted in Homicide in Holo Holo. And then I think the last thing that I really enjoyed being depicted in this novel was entrepreneurship of the Filipino community. And it always reminds me when I think about entrepreneurship of this Canada cross-study, where the highest levels of entrepreneurship in terms of attitudes and mindset, is not in Ontario, but in Manitoba. Isn't that interesting?
0: That is super interesting.
1: Yeah. So there's more likelihood that Filipinos in Manitoba are likely to be more entrepreneurial and take business risks and make business ventures as opposed to Filipinos in Ontario as a whole. So I just think that, that that's so really interesting. interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it was interesting too that Mia had highlighted in this novel that entrepreneurship is very different from independence. Perhaps the reason why there's more entrepreneurship in Manitoba is, is because you needed small business businesses to actually create Filipino enterprise and commerce or where would you get your halo halo <laughs> in a lot of ways right you
0: know that's true that's a really good point
1: and you kind of have to support them and if you don't support them you can't be just totally independent. So in any event, I really enjoyed some of those themes that were kind of very much coming across in this novel. Were there any other themes that struck you in terms of H- homicide in holo Hollow?
0: No, I really do have to say, it's very interesting to go through the novel and it's topics that we talked about on the podcast. All about the time, yeah. Bahalana, like sibling rivalry, beauty pageants even too, we've talked to before. But I do appreciate, and I think this is Mia pivoting see the importance about therapy and making it normalized. I I really like the conversation that Santa had with Lila in that scene. I think that's one of the conversations that really struck me where Lila was met with like, well, we're Filipino, we're Catholic, we pray, we do other things. And her friends are patiently listening and like, well, you know what, this is what I did in my sense. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and for my rehabilitation, which I think Santa had gone through, but I just like the way that she did that, especially during this time of pandemic and highlighting that, you know, it is okay not to be okay and to find the people that you need to talk to. I think that was one of the really good lessons or themes that were pushed in this novel. Aside from fact from the amazing food, I thought that was one of the things I took out from this story, which I thought was wonderful.
1: You know, something that I wanted to tell Lila, you know, as I was kind of reading through <laughs> this book, yeah. was especially when she was kind of putting down the idea of therapy and that, you know, as Catholics, mm-hmm. Christians, we don't talk about it, right? And we, you know, resort to this idea of like whatever will be will be Bahalana as he said. And I just wanted to say to Lila, Lila, like let me take you to the Basilica in Manila of St. Lorenzo Ruiz, where if you go in, you will see the confessional right next to the counseling room where you can actually make appointment with pastoral counselors and stuff like that you know and I was just like oh my gosh like actually things have changed a lot like come on like you want to get some help or at least you want to talk to other people and so along the way there were times like that that I was kind of cheering for her which interestingly enough is very much our culture capital topic of this particular episode is this is that there is this idea of rooting for the underdog. And I know, Sigs, that in Arsenic and Adobo, very much Lila was that underdog. And I think mm-hmm. she continued to have that underdog status throughout Homicide and Hollow Hollow. I think to myself, in some ways, Homicide and Hollow Hollow is a, a retelling of what it means to be, specifically the Filipina, Filipino, Filipinex, Underdog and I reminds me of some of the work of Hermina Menez. She speaks about how there exists like three narratives of Filipinos in the diaspora. So one are belief stories that are told in modern-day retellings of folklore or Filipino folklore. So huh. a very common one is Trese on Netflix that we've oh, talked about right. before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then others are contrasting jokes and comedies that really help illuminate where Filipinos stand in, in the society with respect to the diaspora. Sometimes what ends up happening is the Filipinos become butt of the jokes in some ways, but ends up you know somehow winning the day. And then the last are really personal history that recount the immigration story. And I would say that second-generation Filipino narratives also go on and elaborate further on those personal histories. And really? according to Yenle Le Espiritu, Yen talks about conformity, how there are usually personal histories about conformity, like, you know, trying to become more Canadian or North American or Mm -hmm. Western in some ways, or having a growing Filipino consciousness, so becoming aware of the bias against us. And then sometimes also about identity construction, being both and possessing Filipino and a Western identity. But amongst all those identities and amongst all those narratives is that of the Filipino underdog. And I know you love a really good underdog story. Don't you, Sigs?
0: Absolutely. And it's funny how you just recounted these ideas of beliefs and narratives because it's something I've grown up with. And my parents almost, I feel like they tell me about stories of people that are underdogs and how they can surmount. You know what I mean? My parents are like, we're simple people. My mom's like, I'm a, from a child of 14 kids or whatever for mm. us to survive and stuff for us to be here, to get this life here in Canada, it's a story. And I always was into it, whether it's like a rags to riches story, right. Mm-hmm. You know, like the basics, whether it's Annie or Cinderella, like these inexperienced individuals expected to win. Like, I, I think you've mentioned that before, but there's always something about a Filipino underdog. And now we're seeing more like stories in a representation where we like Lila In Homicide in Hala Hollow*, like, where she's trying to solve a murder very easily. (laughs) (laughs) Aligned with the police. Which, you know, very interesting in these cozy mysteries where, hey, I run a restaurant with people and I've been a pageant thing. I'm sure I can help solve this mystery. That's right. There's something attractive about a Filipino, like an underdog, not just a Filipino. But I feel like I grew up with that. My mom's like, you just have to give people a chance. The people are trying to surmount. There's a story behind them and them fighting to get there. I just think of my mom being a poor kid, doing well in school and getting scholarships and getting first in the race and my father just trying to pay for school and trying to provide and stuff. It's it's that journey. I've always been exposed to it and I can't help but like the underdog. I don't know about you,
1: but... It's the same and the immigration story for most Filipinos tends to be exactly that. That we're mm-hmm. underdogs, that we came from nothing, and then built a life, and were successful in some way, shape, or form. And along the way, we've made some sacrifices. And I think that that's probably a commonality amongst most Filipinos in the diaspora, is again, we came from odds against us, to here we right. are, hopefully thriving somewhere in the diaspora. At least that's always the hope, is That we're thriving somewhere in the diaspora Most underdog stories take on what you've described Like a rags to riches Or Cinderella story Or a dark horse story And that they're usually inexperienced individuals Expected to not succeed or win And when they do win It's usually because of their creativity More than anything else But I think in terms of the Filipino underdog, the way that we're framing Filipino underdogs and what makes them unique is is that we're usually seen as small players in a competition that's not really designed for us. So just like Lila, she's an entrepreneur trying to raise a business, never really wanted to be in the beauty pageant industry but here she is getting pulled into it and yet she's really clever at problem solving. Like when she thinks about putting things together, she's doing a lot of problem solving. Yes, that's about part about creativity, but she's also quite talented at the same time. And there are many examples of where Filipinos are seen as, again, small players in a competition not designed for them. So basketball, politics, and recently in esports. The other thing that makes Filipino underdogs underdogs and uniquely Filipino is, is their unrecognized talent. And I think that is like that. She has like a talent for problem solving. And yet that's not fully recognized by everybody, no. except no. by the detective who says, hey, I I think we should need your help, even though you've gone through something traumatic in the last (laughs) book, right? So could you help us? And then the last two qualities that I would say that make a Filipino underdog a Filipino underdog is how they're unassuming and humble in character and possessing a lot of grit. So when I think Mm. about Lila, she has those four things. You know, she's seen as a small player who's misestimated by others. One of the main characters, I think, is Beth, who is like this white businesswoman who just, you know, misestimates Lila in a lot of different ways and doesn't really think that she can manage a bunch of stuff but she does and doesn't recognize her talent and yet lila comes across as again really unassuming and humble and yet possesses a lot of grit where she's like okay come on let's kind of go with it and the concept of grit that i'm relying on really comes from positive psychology and in positive psychology they would say that grit stands for guts resilience initiative, and tenacity. Oh, I love that. And it's a way of meaning that like, you are willing to stay with it and persevere with it, and you do so with passion and desire. And I think that that's what makes the Filipino underdog different from many other types of underdogs out there. When I think about this, and what I've just kind of shared with you, Sigs, some of the examples out there is I had mentioned eSports. There's this Filipino eSport team called Team Secret, Team Secret. Tommy. They have beaten a number of other esports teams from around the world and haven't been expected to win. And their latest upset was with Team Japan Whoa. in the video game that they play or in the game, in the esport game that they play. The other is like my parents' favorite underdog at the moment is Isko Moreno, who oh. is the current Manila mayor and presidential hopeful. He's seen as someone coming from some of the poorest parts of Manila and the Philippines and made himself into what he is today. You know, and the other is Manny Pacquiao, of course, you know, boxer, senator, and also presidential hopeful. And I just have to say, I just remember watching his boxing career with my dad, and my dad just absolutely was enthralled by his underdog story, and then seeing him to become, like, an eight-time champion in various weight categories in various divisions and stuff like that. And then recently, Hidalin Diaz, uh, yes. the recent Olympic weight lifter, yeah. you know, that took the Philippines awesome, by storm awesome. and brought the first gold medal. And again, like underdog story. And then Toronto's own Erica Kasupanan, right? Survivor Mustang, 41 winner. From Western. Yeah, from Western, right? So go Western, yeah. you know, like our old alma mater. And just glad to see that as a Survivor 41 winner. Great underdog story. If you watched that season. So I don't know if you can think of any other kind of like underdogs out there that I that I might have missed.
0: No, I think you just colored it really well, especially Filipino underdogs. My mom always said too, whatever, sometimes an underdog is someone that's trying to redeem themselves. Mm. Right. And so this is a sidebar, Kuya. You can edit Mm -hmm. this out. Mm -hmm. My parents. Love Vanessa Williams. Do you remember Vanessa Williams?
1: Love Vanessa Williams. This
0: wonderful actor, singer, triple threat. She had won the Miss USA crown, right? And pictures surfaced of her before whatever that people thought were racist, so she lost the crown, right? She came back. It was like a comeback from redemption. She still she went beyond it, and she embraced it. And she embraced it. And she, my parents always was like, that's an underdog overcoming. It makes me laugh, but I'm like, props to Vanessa Williams. This is what my parents like. This is that narrative. My mom's like, see, you can overcome. It's all good. And please, everyone's done like racy pictures now. I don't think it's a big deal. <laughs> Today, no one would
1: think twice about it. No,
0: no they like, said, please, we saw your like Instagram feed. It's no big deal, but you can cut this out if you want. But I always think of that. My mom always thinks there's a factor of them overcoming. And I think the examples that you mentioned about Filipinos overcoming and, and creating that space, making space for them. I think those are great examples of the Filipino underdog.
1: It's appropriate that you've saved the Vanessa Williams for last.
0: Ha, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> Folks, there was a sound of its best Williams saying called Save the Best for Last. You face it, you listen to you do Gen Xers talk, but that was perfect, Kuya. I love you. But from this, Kuya, what is the fixing of the week about the Filipino underdog?
1: I will say, in as much as most underdogs typically win because of some creative move or fluke incident, Filipino underdogs tend to be talented. I'll always remember what my dad says is let them misestimate you. At the end of the day, it's to their peril. And so to all of our listeners that feel like they're a Filipino underdog, let them misestimate you because we know you can still hold on because you've got the heart of the Filipino, which has a lot of grit out there. So guts, resilience, initiative, and tenacity. So that's my fixing of the week is let them misestimate you.
0: I do not want to add anything else to that because I think that's a great way mm. to end our podcast. Now, folks, I hope many of you have their grit and I hope many of you will pick up Homicide and Halo Hollow*, written by Mia P. Manansala. Tell us what you think about the novel. Share with us or share some great recipes. And Mia, if you are listening, we loved your novel. I hope you listen to this podcast and give us some insight about those recipes. Email us at holoholopopculture at Mm -hmm. gmail.com. The Hollow Hollow podcast is available on all podcast platforms. Rate us and leave a review. You can find us on social media or social medias, as I say. Twitter, our handle is at holoholopop, and we're on Instagram at holoholopopculture.
1: Finally, we receive editorial feedback from Mary Beth Badian. Our musical theme is by Chell Turingen, and we'll see all of you guys again real soon.
0: See you soon.